first episode of Beery Interesting, the beer podcast focused around discussing beer styles, how to taste them, what to look out for, where they came from, the history, the development, um, and just generally looking at beer and how it's divided up into styles. I think that's where we'll start. We might go to different topics with time we might intersperse some interviews i'm not really sure where we're going to go um but initially this podcast is really focused around um beer styles um a little bit about me um my name is patrick gardner although most everyone calls me paddy and i'm an advanced cicerone and a bjcp beer judge from northern ireland living in london england and um, I am studying for my Master Cicerone exam, which I'm sitting in the winter of this year, 2021. So uh, this podcast, as much as anything, is a great way for me to order my thoughts around beer styles um, and descriptive language. Um, and is a great um, mock exam for the oral portions of the Master Cicerone um, so hopefully it's as useful and interesting to you as it is useful for me. Um, I'm going to try and exercise very minimal editing on this podcast, uh, probably unless I go off on some intensely derailing tangents um, or say something dubious, which um, requires further research I'll try not to edit this podcast too much and just allow it to be a, a fairly sort of ad hoc discussion of the given topic so from episode 2 onwards we'll take a, a style of beer per episode and discuss how it came about and how it presents in terms of quantitative and qualitative, qualitative parameters um, for episode 1 I think we should just talk about beer and beer styles, how they came about, how they became distinct from each other, how they're currently understood and organised and why. Because um, we kind of take it for granted a lot in the Cicerone community and certainly within a lot of craft beer circles that an IPA is an IPA and um, a, a lager is a lager of, of whatever given type without really thinking about um how how these things are, are distinct and defined from each other. So let's begin with beer. Um, and I'll begin with a beer. I, I was going to say I encourage everyone to drink along with me in this podcast. Um, but in reality, I probably consume most of my podcasts commuting um, to and from my place of work. Um, and drinking beer in the morning on a bicycle is a slippery slope in more ways than one. So if you're commuting, don't feel obliged to. But if you're one of these people who sits of an evening um, with a glass in hand and listens to a podcast, then certainly crack one open with me 
um, and let's enjoy the experience together. Um, for those keeping score, I'm drinking a, a lost lager from Brewdog. So, beer um, is probably 6,000 years old, maybe 7, maybe 8, depends who you ask. Um, and it came about um, as a kind of hand-in-hand hand with uh, the birth of agriculture. So as nomadic peoples began to settle... Um, in, in the Neolithic era, in the Fertile Crescent, um, sort of in, in ancient Babylonia. Now, the Fertile Crescent is this sort of wedge of land in the modern Middle East, in between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, where they, the kind of confluence of these two great rivers, um, which created a really fertile drainage basin, um, which was great for growing things like, I don't know, barley for making beer. And um, some people will tell you that as people settled um, specifically to grow grain on land, that's kind of how civilization came about, they um, incidentally created beer from the grain. Um, some anthropologists have suggested that the very reason these people settled in the first place was to grow grain to make beer with. They were walking about, tramping about the place all over the show from Egypt up through up through Sumeria and, you know, all, all over the show. And they were really thirsty and they were making this beer and they were like, this is great, but if only we could have loads of grain and just make loads of beer and stop walking. And that's sort of how the, the first uh, civilization um, in ancient Mesopotamia came about. I'm not sure the... Um, the the proof behind that claim I think it's slightly dubious but um, I like the idea either way beer has certainly always gone hand in hand with developments in, in civilization and, and modernization and industrialization and beer has always been a driving force and even if we look back at some of the very first beer recipes I mean 6,000 years ago we have the hymn to Ninkasi on this Sumerian tablet. Ninkasi was the their goddess of beer. Ninkasi literally translates as she who fills the mouth. And she was the brewer to the gods. And of course the first brewer and the, and the first god of brewing in history was a woman because most mostly women were brewing. It's a fairly recent development to have men in the brew house. Um, even through, you know, medieval... England and, and um, the Dark Ages, it was always alewives who were making the ale for the table while the men were gallivanting and getting up to silly mischiefs. So this hymn to Ninkasi from ancient Sumeria um, kind of tells us um, the first recipe, you know, she, she who um, waters the malt on the land, she who makes the malt into a loaf, she who wets the loaf in a jar... And what we end up with is a, a recipe for something resembling a Finnish uh, sati, 
or, or a Scandinavian sati beer of some kind, which is a traditional Scandinavian beer made from usually rye bread, which is um, moistened and allowed to naturally ferment and flavoured with juniper. But that's kind of what we had in in the very first beers in in um, the Fertile Crescent all those years ago was um, a kind of starchy loaf made from the greens they were growing, um, which were moistened and allowed to germinate, which is what we recognise as the modern malting process. Um, and these um, loaves were kind of moistened and the, the starches drawn out and sugars were created and they were allowed to spontaneously ferment with the yeast in the, in the environment. Little did we know we wouldn't really understand yeast or know much about it until the 18th century. Um, but but that's kind of where we, we come from. Um, it would have been a far cry from modern beers. There were no hops, um, certainly no hops in beer until at least the kind of 12th or 13th century. Hildegard von Bingen mentions them in the 12th century, but it's very uh, up for argument whether they were being used with any sort of conviction back then. Um, we see the first hops used in France and Europe um, in the 1300s and then kind of gaining traction in the 16th century in Germany and um, the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, and we have the Belgians to thank for bringing them over to England. And of course, the English didn't like them and they thought they were smelly and they thought they were too tall and too green and had a riot and then no one cared and then they were all over the place and they were widely planted throughout the UK. So just classic antics there. So anyway, back to Sumeria. Um, the nomadic people settle in the first half crescent and they start brewing in earnest and they are, they're malting grain, which is amazing. And they're fermenting things, but they don't really know how much like the Irish um, of the bronze age uh, who were making beer. They kind of thought, um, it was ghosts or spirits or or magic that was making the um, kind of grains into delicious boozy alcohol. Um, in Ireland, it's the puka is the ghost of, or the spirit, I should say, of, of beer who comes into your porridge overnight and turns it into delicious Guinness. Um, back then, it was probably a gift from the god Ninkazi. Um so that kind of develops and, and, you know, in Egypt, a couple of thousand years later, we've got um, commercial breweries, essentially, um, using large clay pots, amphorae, to brew in, in large batches. We've got um, Akkadian civilizations with um, pictographic tablets showing us people communally sharing beer out of, like, party punch bowls with massive long straws made of reeds. It's really not that far away from... Um, nightclubs i assume i don't know um i don't think anyone's been to a nightclub in quite some time so if anyone remembers what that's like let me know um but even back then um there would have been distinct styles of beer regionally depending on what specific grains were being grown um a lot of it might have been ancient uh, grains ancient uh, cousins of our modern grains like spelt which is obviously still cultivated um so but does your specific region grow spelt or does it grow wheat or does it grow etc and then are the grains wetted and formed into a loaf after being ground and is the loaf used as a starter to collect yeast and ferment the beer and is it then strained is it 
um, flavoured with any additives like locally grown herbs or tinctures like a, like an early Groot beer. Um, are the grains dried in the sun? Are they dried beside a fire, giving a smoky tint like a very, very early smoked beer, Rauch beer? Um, does the local um, microflora give a flavour of acidity? Is it like a lambic ale? Um, is it a fairly clean um, beer fermented out with mostly Saccharomyces from the natural environment, giving a, a, a less acidic profile and less bacterial influence? All these kind of variables, um, which are very much controlled in modern brewing, but were, were less controlled back then, would have influenced specific regional variances in, in the ales they were creating back then. As we move forward through time then, um, geography plays even more of a, a role. Um, specifically, as more control came into brewing, as hops became the predominant uh, flavouring agent, transplanting medieval groots uh, made of bog myrtle and um, pine and all sorts of bizarre um, concoctions of, of herbs. As hops became dominant, and as breweries began to understand um, controlling temperature and controlling, um, you know, gravity of, of sugars in work in the Industrial Revolution in, in Britain, um, what really drove the regionality of styles. And it was um, water chemistry, mostly. Regional ingredients, certainly. Um, which hops were grown where, but, I mean colonialism was prevalent hops were being shipped back and forth from continental Europe to Britain from Britain to the Americas from the Americas back to Europe so we have early records of London porters being brewed with American hops when hops were short in the UK and um, Guinness being brewed with Willamette which was Fuggles transplanted to Washington State to the American colonies um, so it's it's not to say that um, there was no sense of terroir. There was, but there was no inclination really at that stage of, of brewing with hops to express terroir in beer the way there is in modern craft brewing. Um, the hops were, whichever hops were cheap and available and viable. The malt was from your nearest maltster using whatever grains were available and cheap and viable. And um, so... Certainly the driving factor was water chemistry um, and that's why we saw beers like Irish Dry Stout rising up from Dublin where they have huge concentrations of, of bicarbonate or HCO in the water, um, really high residual alkalinity um, which, which needs reducing. We need acidity in the mash for conversion of, of starches and enzymatic activity. We need... Um, an appropriate pH for the yeast to do their job and ferment the wort into beer. And a very effective method for this is highly kilned or, or roasted malts, like roasted barley, um, malted or unmalted, doesn't matter much. The um, the roasting process is what, what gives acidification potential to the malt um, so that we can drive down those bicarbonate-heavy waters um, into something much more usable. Um equally in Munich with their hard water and their um, 
world-renowned Dunkel lagers, which came out of the caves of Munich, and Black Forest, certainly, with their Schwarzbeers. And with um, Burton and their IPA, um, everyone wanted to move their brewery to Burton for the Burton well water, which was sulfitic and had that kind of, uh, dare I say it, the, the Burton snatch, of course, that um, sulfurous kind of... Um, tinged to the water up, up as high as 800 parts per million of, of sulfate in the water, ideal for isomerization of alpha acids from hops and creating bitter and pungent IPAs and lots of calcium for very, very healthy fermentations and for great flocculation of yeast to clarify the beer, great for transporting across sea around the Cape of Africa to Madras. Um, so stability which is, was key back then for transport, came from those very high calcium sulfate levels in the water, that real, um, that real gypsum um, concentration in the well water of Burton. So this is why we associate certain styles with certain places, Stout with Dublin, Dunkel with Munich, IPA with Burton, London and Edinburgh with your dark beers, brown ales, porters. Although, of course, both were... Um, world leaders at the time circa 1760 to 1830 in IPA brewing Edinburgh as much as London was certainly and the first IPA sent to uh, India surely came about from uh, Bow in East London from George Hodson's brewery or at least those were the most widely documented at the time um, but we can see how regionality and specifically water chemistry drove um, locality of styles of beer at the time. When we get through to the modern day, in the post-war years, certainly in Britain, a lot of styles have died out, IPA isn't brewed, brown ale was transplanted by lighter beers as, as glass bottles took hold and people wanted bright light beers associated with... Um, higher class in society the brown ale having become a sort of cloth cap worker workers beer and the paler october beers of the estates being known as the the sort of gentry ales um and as beer was put into glass bottles people wanted these brighter more aristocratic ales more widely available so brown ale dies out um ipa dies out as taxation and shortage of ingredients in the interwar years drives down ABVs and drives down gravities in beer we end up with a fairly meek brewing scene um, in in the mid-century on both sides of the pond and in Europe as well um, with a lot of light beers being brewed a lot of ordinary bitters and mild ales and um, a lot of continental lagers being brought into the UK and it's at this stage that we have entered the majestic microbrewing craft brewing scene of um, the USA grown out of home brewers grown out of revivalist brewing traditions people saying okay we don't like these prohibition ales we don't like these massive macro produced lagers with high adjunct levels and very low hopping and poor yeast management at the time and, and very dubious flavors all over the place for low cost we want to try and brew something in our ho homes 
which is more tasty and more representative of our tastes. And so we end up with your Ken Grossman's and your US craft brewing heroes like Fritz Maytag in San Francisco who decide they want to revive um, somewhat extinct recipes and to drive a focus on quality and to um, aspire for flavour and drinkability and quality products um, derived from old British recipes mostly. Uh, hence, we have beers such as Anchor's Porter, and we have beers such as um, the Sierra Nevada um, Pale Ales, which are very much inspired by um, British brewing recipes. And that gives birth to the the modern British um, revivals of those beers, the modern American craft brewed revivals of those British recipes. So... It's at this stage that we have more quality beer being brewed in America and to an extent in England since before the commencement of the 20th century. And we have a homebrewing boom in the States where people are brewing a lot and they want to enter these into competitions and people want to judge these beers. And how do you judge beers one man's brown ale is another man's porter without a set of guidelines. And so Gordon Strong starts the Beer Judge Certification Programme in 1985, really quite early days. And the BJCP certify beer judges for brewing competitions and they set out a set of guidelines. And the Brewers Association of America have set out their guidelines for beer styles so that we have a handbook to follow. And this is all well and good for judging competitions. If seven people want to enter their IPA in and we all need a, a kind of benchmark of what an IPA should be like to judge against, that's all well and good. But these guidelines are very much focused on the quantitative parameters how strong should the beer be? What colour should it be? How bitter should it be? What gravity should it be? What ingredients should be used? How should it taste? I mean, that's qualitative, but it, it disservices the history, in my opinion, of a lot of styles of beer. And as you'll come to realise as these episodes go on, I'm very much of the opinion that if you can understand the origin and the history behind a style of beer... And if you can taste a couple of examples, then you have a very, very full and well-rounded understanding of the quantitative parameters. You can memorise the colour, bitterness and, and strength of any number of beer styles, but that doesn't mean you understand the styles of beer. Whereas, if you know where those beer styles came from, and you've tasted one of them, then you have a, a fairly good understanding of not only how they should be, quantitatively and qualitatively but also why they are that way and f for why and from when and and the really interesting context behind them so that's hopefully what i'll lay out is certainly what these beers taste like we'll try some examples we can um compare 
classic examples of the same style. We can compare Tegenzeer Hellas with Augustiner Hellas against Schönrammer Hellas, and we can talk about the nuanced differences. And at the end of the day, if we want to know what a Hellas is, we have to taste a couple, and we have to know where it came from. And if we can manage those two simple things, then I think we're 95% of the way there. Um, the other interesting thing, of course, is styles in flux in modern craft brewing as people push boundaries and try to make beers more and more groundbreaking. We end up with developments in styles. The New England IPA from, from Vermont in 2004, the Brew IPA, which has mostly died off now, but maybe an interesting footnote if it's not revived in a few years. The Black IPA or the Cascadian Dark Ale. These sort of modern variations which are coming out of brewers trying to, to push boundaries and, and stretch the limits of what they can brew is something we can definitely look at. And maybe we'll devote a whole episode to that. But I think certainly if we start out in the coming days with classic styles from from Europe and, and Britain and possibly yeah, some classic styles from from pre-prohibition era America then we've got a great basis um, on which to build some further interesting discussion in the days ahead for now I think that's been a, a prologue of acceptable length with acceptable backstory I will leave you I will say cheers And see you next time, where we'll pick a type of beer, have a taste, have a chat. And uh, any questions, please leave a review, let me know. I'll set up an inbox, I guess, for this. Beeryinteresting at gmail.com. Sounds acceptable if no one's taken it already. Is this is it starting to show that I haven't put much planning into this or written any notes or, or put together a written any notes or written any notes or, or put together a game plan at all? Um yeah, this is very off the cuff. But hopefully the stream of consciousness um meandering doesn't uh, put too many people off. Hopefully you enjoyed and hopefully you'll tune back in next time for a somewhat more focused but potentially equally <laughs> a rambling discussion of a very specific style of beer. Thanks for tuning in. I've been Paddy Gardner. I'll see you next time. Another show, just another beer show. Oh gosh, just another beer show.